Today I'm going to, Nathan's asked me to continue through Exodus, so he's been, uh, he's been leading you through at the start of Exodus, so we're up to chapter 4. Uh, before we do that, I'm just going to pray and then we'll get stuck in. Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord and Redeemer, we feel blessed to have you in our midst today. We can never show how much we appreciate all you've done for us, making it possible to have relationship, making it possible to feel the love and security that our Lord and Father brings in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. Yeah, so Nathan's asked me to go through Exodus, so I just want to give a little bit of context. I know he's been talking on it for, for two or three weeks now. But yeah, just to, just to start, right at the start. So Exodus is part of the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. Um, these make up part of the Jewish Bible called the Torah, which is the instruction or the law. Um, and it's sometimes called the books of Moses because he's the main character and some commentators think that he wrote those books. So without a doubt, Jesus and his followers had these teachings. They had access to these books all these scriptures, and they read, on, they read them, they meditated on their meaning. And they're not outdated stories. I know Nathan's been, been stressing that every week. Uh, they're not outdated stories with no relevance to us. They're great reserves of wisdom and teaching. And they teach us about what it means to be human and about the promises of God and the nature of God. So central to the understanding of that Pentateuch, those first five books, and the Old Testament, and indeed the whole Bible, uh, is a promise given in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. So let me just quickly read that to you now. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. Hang on. <laughs> uh, I'll make you a great nation and bless you. I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So these three promises of posterity, sons, numerous dependents, a great nation, uh, the promise of relationship with God, his nearness, his blessing, his cursing his enemies, his covenant promises, and the promise of the land. These three promises, they first appear there in Genesis, and they're repeated and amplified throughout the whole of Genesis and the Pentateuch. Seen through this lens, the Pentateuch is to be viewed as an account of the progress, or the frustration of progress, which is often the case, towards the fulfillment of these promises. These elements of God's promise are emphasized and they're dominant in different books. And in Exodus, the promise of divine relationships key. God forms a deep relationship with his people. We see him blessing them, and indeed, in some very uncomfortable passages, cursing their enemies. And all, all this is part of a true, just, and faithful God fulfilling his promise. It, the whole book tells the story of how God freed his people from slavery in Egypt and bound them to himself in a covenant. The exodus from Egypt is initiated by acts already existing, divine human relationship. We're told God remembers his covenant with the patriarchs in chapter 2, verse 24. Now, remembering is used in quite an odd way in the Old Testament when it refers to God. It doesn't mean he forgot. 
and needed reminding. It means God's moving into action to work out some aspects of his covenant promise with his people. The commissioning of Moses from the God of the fathers, the promise of his witness and his enabling presence are key. This is God moving in an active way. So we're going to pick up the story where Nathan left it off in chapter 4. And this is the conclusion of the dialogue with Moses and God through the burning bush. And I'm going to read it to you now. And I hope it's maybe going to come up on the screen. Yeah. So I'm reading from the NIV. So apologies if uh, it doesn't agree. But I think it will. Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? And the Lord said to him, What's that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. Moses reached out his hand and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become white as snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored, like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you, or pay attention to the first sign. They may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs, or listen to you, take some water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past, nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. He said, what about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you and he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and teach you what to do. He will speak for, to the people for you and it will be as if he were your mouth, as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so you can perform the signs with it. This is the word of God. Amen. So the rest of chapter 4 continues on with Moses' return to Egypt, but I'm just going to concentrate on the end of this dialogue. But the section we've just heard might rightly be called Anyone But Me. We see Moses try and attempt to excuse himself, to squirm out, to, to get away from that responsibility that God's placing on him. It's, a, it's quite a remarkable dialogue between Moses and God. The humanness of Moses, his fears and his vulnerability are displayed for us all to ponder. And the relevance of his responses are extraordinary. When we, the people of God in our time, 3,500 years later, 
sense God moving into action, how often are our responses the same? Who am I? What if they don't believe me? Please send someone else. We might expect Moses to stress the impossibility of influencing Pharaoh and his court, as we may tacitly, if seldom openly, tend to accept that the gospel won't overcome the powers of Satan and secularism in our time. But no, Moses frames his refusal in doubt and in unbelief by placing the blame on God's people and on his unworthiness. He says, what if they don't believe me or listen to me and say the Lord did not appear to you? This is something we can do. We can blame others for unbelief as if it absolves us of any personal responsibility in the fulfillment of God's kingdom on earth. We might experience that fear so powerfully that we fail to act in accordance with God's will, to step out in faith when we fear that people will ignore us, ridicule us, or doubt us. It can be very difficult. In the passage, God responds to Moses' unbelief by giving him signs. And it's, it's just so important for us to think now that these signs were just for Moses. No one's watching, and there's no evidence that they wouldn't have believed him without the signs. No one else sees it. Uh, they're just for his benefit. And God is present with us now and further available to us through prayer and meditation. And I believe if he will make his will known to each of you, just as he did to Moses, and he will confirm it to you if you ask him through prayer. So Moses is the first human being mentioned in the Bible with any power to perform miracles. Uh, and he retains it after this event. And, and the miracles that he's given here, they're not without meaning. They foreshadow the great works that Moses is going to do for the people and uh, deliver his people from slavery out of Egypt. So God first asks him, what's in your hand? And this theme, God likes to use that. And we see it again and again throughout his scriptures. He uses what's in Shamgar's hands in Judges. He uses what's in David's hands in 1 Samuel. What's in Samson's hands in Judges again. And what's in the hands of a little boy in the Gospel of Mark. God's provided us with all we need to perform great works in his name. But sometimes we just don't see it. We can't see it. So our Lord Jesus, he demonstrates that in a very practical way with the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark's gospel. The disciples have just returned to Jesus. He's commissioned them to go to the neighboring towns, to preach his name, to perform miracles. And they come back and they're knackered. <laughs> they want a debrief. They want a period of rest and recuperation. And Jesus says, that's what we'll do. But it doesn't, it doesn't work out like that. When they go to this popular picnic spot, there's a huge crowd. 5,000 men, we're told. So we don't actually know the total number. Women and children weren't counted in that number. So after the long, tiring day, they're wiped out, they're drained, and, and they're a little wry, and they tell Jesus, send them away. Uh, we don't have anything to give them. We don't have the money. They say it'll take half a year's wage to feed them. And Jesus shows them that everything they need is there with them. He asks for a stock check. He distributes it generously among that 5,000. Everything they needed to do God's work was present, but they just didn't see it. The lesson may be Little is enough when God's in it, or the ordinary is extraordinary when God is involved. Or if you want to have a picnic, invite Jesus. This failure to trust God, this failure to trust his will, 
and to see that he has and will provide for us amply. It's a mindset we can get stuck in, even in a missional church like this one. Sometimes we've got to be aware of that, push against it in our prayer lives. What we have is enough. It's enough to deliver the work that God has in mind for us as a community. If we need more, God will provide more. The Presbytery plan for Dundee is well underway. Uh, they released the plan for Perth Presbytery, which I'm in uh, on Thursday, and they had a meeting yesterday, so Dundee will be hot on the heels, I'm sure. It's frightening, 35% reduction in, in ministries, and that's required to, just to move the church forward, to change the church's nature. And it's frightening. But we must pray that everyone involved and all of us here know that what we have is enough. So back to Moses and the signs he was given. First God tells him, throw that staff on the ground. And it turns into a snake. So after that, the staff's called the staff or the rod of God. And it's used by Moses to perform many miracles and signs. He he does them in front of Pharaoh. He parts the Red Sea. He smashes a rock with it, so water comes out. Uh, he holds it up in a battle between the Israelites and the Amalekites. When he lowers it, their enemies gain advantage, and he raises it again. And he's helped hold it up by two of his followers until victory is achieved. This ordinary piece of wood, this, this shepherd's staff, his walking stick, becomes a great thing when God is involved. So why was it turned into a snake? The snake has obvious biblical connotations. It's linked to the fall in the garden, but here its, its symbolism is deepened even further. In Egypt, the snake represents an early Egyptian goddess said to control and protect their lands. The image came to symbolize Pharaoh's sovereignty, his deity, his divine authority, and it's used on his headdress. Uh, and he, this, in, this, in using the symbol, one no doubt that Moses is well aware of, having spent his time in Pharaoh's court. God's showing Moses that he alone is God, that he alone is in control of Egypt. He is the one true God, not Pharaoh, not the Egyptian gods. We hear Moses runs away from the snake, which is an echo to the past when he fled Egypt. He's also asked to pick it up by the tail. And if we have any snake handlers, they'll know that's the most dangerous place to pick up a snake. It can just whip around and get you. But he does it. A subtle little, do you trust me to protect you from God? And Moses does. Next, he asks him to place his hand in his cloak. And it turns leprous. And repeat the action to, to be healed. Uh, so leprosy in the Old Testament is often a punishment for pride. And when individuals act as if they were God. We see it in Numbers, in 2 Kings, in 2 Chronicles. Here God's not only demonstrating his power over, over the body. He's showing Moses what he's going to do. And that he intends to punish Pharaoh and the Egyptians for their arrogance, setting themselves up against him. God then turns the Nile to blood, showing again he's in control of the lands and the waters of Egypt. And their gods are false and will offer them no protection. The Nile's central to that Egyptian cult. God's power over it is proof for Moses, if Moses needed any, that he is the real deal. And the signs are given to Moses to explain what God's going to do and to give him confidence and trust in his power to do it. And they're deliberately designed 
to demonstrate the power of the one true God over the false gods of Egypt. So what's Moses' response? Uh, again, doubt, fear, and it might, it might be seen as humility. He's saying he's not eloquent, he's slow in speech. And some commentators give him, give him the benefit of the doubt over that. They say he had some speech impediment that the Bible doesn't mention, or that he's referring to how rusty his Egyptian is after 40 years away in the wilderness. But we do hear in Acts, chapter 7, verse 22, that Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and that he was mighty in words and deeds. But those times of eloquence, 40 years behind him, his self-confidence is perhaps gone, and he needs God's confidence. So God answers him. Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak, and I will teach you what to say. So if Moses was a poor speaker, was that news to God? Does he have trouble keeping track of who's deaf, blind, mute? Does Moses really think that, that God's made a mistake on the basis of his eloquence? It's hard to, it's hard to say. But God, he tells Moses it doesn't matter. I, the God who created the most eloquent mouths who ever lived, am on your side. What you have is enough. I will provide. Just trust me. Work with me. It wouldn't matter even if he was a poor speaker. God says, I'll be with you, help you, and tell you what to say. God is sufficient for all of us, no matter what real or imagined inadequacies we have. The Bible tells us that he is for us who can stand against us. Finally, Moses he shows his hand. He's done with his excuses. He's had enough. He shows the real state of his heart. He says, well, I'd rather you send someone else. It's not a lack of ability, it's a lack of willingness. He says, please send someone else. Is that our default response to God? Can't someone else do it? Won't someone else do it? Maybe not, but sometimes it, it can be. Then we hear that the Lord's anger burned against Moses. So he wasn't angry when Moses said, who am I? He wasn't angry when Moses said, who shall I say sent me? Or who are you? He wasn't angry when Moses said, suppose they don't believe me. He wasn't even angry when Moses, maybe falsely, claimed he was not and had never been eloquent. But God was angry when Moses was unwilling. With his feelings of his inadequacy, his professed ineloquence, his criminal record maybe, he thinks he's not the man for the job. But God is determined to partner him to fulfill this Exodus mission. As a parent might invite a child to help them with a task which they could easily accomplish on their own. So God calls inadequate people like Moses, like us, to work with him. It's God's primary way of getting things done. As St. Augustine put it, without God, we cannot. Without us, he will not. The American author Joyce Meyer says, courage is fear that said its prayers and decided to go forward anyway. Moses is afraid, worried about his suitability for what God has in mind with him, and he is a slave to that fear. How often are we slaves to that same fear? 
the great I am is with us, the Alpha, the Omega, the creator of all the king of kings is on our team, on our side. But like Moses, we still think I'm not up to it. I'm not enough, this won't work. This great lie, this trick of the roaring lion that prowls in the darkness for us is a very good one. It would have us think we're doing God a favor. Someone else will be better than me at this task. But our God does not make mistakes. If he's asked you, it's for his reasons and it's part of his divine plan. The Bible's full to the brim of imperfect people who do great work for God. Now, I think it's pretty unlikely that one of us here would be called into the presence of God in the form of a burning bush and converse with him as Moses did. But God does have plans for all of our lives. You know, and all of us here at times are in a position to do God's work. And we've all experienced some kind of burning bush moment when we sense God seeking our attention, God speaking to us, calling us to participate in what he's doing in our midst. And like Moses, we doubt ourselves and we doubt God. But like Moses here, we should step forward in the knowledge God will give us the words to say. Give us the strength required to carry on. He's already given us all we need to start and prayer is an inexhaustible pool of strength and guidance. He went, when we prayerfully approach the opportunities we're given, we're told we can move mountains. So the passage that we've just read concludes with quite another important point. This conversation and Moses' responses aren't a surprise to God as he is all-knowing. The Lord's already put into motion the things that Moses needs. His brother Aaron's on his way to meet him. Events set in place before the beginning of the conversation are the conclusion of it. God shows him he already has everything he needs to succeed in the fullness of time. He doesn't need self-confidence, he needs God-confidence. In this burning bush moment, Moses came face-to-face with two life-altering facts. God knows my name, and God has a name. God knew him, and it was possible for him to know God. If, as Shakespeare would have it, all the world's a stage, Moses had just met the director, and despite all his failings, God had written him into that script. The responsibility for life working out happily ever after is is on our shoulders, a crushing weight if we write that script. If we turn inward for answers, we must come up with the words. If we turn to God, he will help us. God, the author of creation, is the only way to life, indeed to life in all its fullness. Doing God's will is freedom. It is deliverance from exile. But all too often, we try and follow our own will, which can lead us away from the life God has in mind for us. In our daily lives, let's all be attentive to the will of God always and be willing to surrender ourselves to that will when asked. It's not a burden. We shouldn't live in fear of God asking us to do something. Instead, it is a blessing. This is true freedom and contentment. This is what we were made for. 
and will lead us deeper into a relationship with our Lord. It's part of the kingdom building work we've been asked to do as Christians. So let's pray together now. Lord God, help us today to hear your word. Help us to trust in you and not ourselves. Show us the paths you wish us to walk. Lead us with your guiding hand. As we meditate on your word, may the Holy Spirit fill us with confidence. Wash away our doubts and fears. May we be strong and courageous and know that you are with us wherever we go. Amen.